Open your Bibles with me to the book of Ezekiel and chapter 36. After months of turning to Mark, you'll now have to turn to a book in the Old Testament for a bit. And we're going to do something a little bit different than we normally do. I don't think we've ever done it quite like this before. Normally, we work through books of the Bible. Uh, That, I think, is good for just the regular preaching of his word. It means that I don't have to decide what will it be this week or that week. It means that whatever comes next is what we'll preach on. And that forces us to deal with whatever is there. Uh, This time, we are going to look at chapter 36 of Ezekiel. And why are we going to break from our normal practice that is good? Well, the answer is because this chapter, I'm convinced and hope you are by the time we're done, I'm convinced that this is a very important chapter in terms of understanding the story of Scripture. So, you know, if you're going to understand any story, there are, are certain parts of that story that uh, even if the whole thing is true, certain parts are more critical for the flow of, you know, the narrative connections in the story, the plot line, right? I mean, not every part is equally important for how the story comes to an end. And, and that's the same way it is in the Bible. All of it is true and good and edifying. But some parts, if you want to understand the story of Scripture, some parts give you a little bit more information to, to kind of hang more things upon And I think Ezekiel 36 is one of those extremely important passages for understanding the story of Scripture. And I'm I'm also convinced uh, that the more we understand the story of Scripture, the more we will, the better we will appreciate our salvation. Because I think there's a a sense in which sometimes we uh, kind of get the impression that, well, the Old Testament, that's about how God, you know, was like angry at sin and, and, you know, law and stuff like that. And then, oh, all of a sudden, Jesus just plop, shows up on the scene, and there, there he gives us the salvation that we need. As if it's disconnected and has no historical connection, as if Jesus has no historical connection with what came before that. And that is, that is deeply flawed, that is wrong, uh, as it turns out. Um, what we'll see here is that salvation is planned. Uh, God had a plan from the very beginning. And, and the more we understand that plan, I think the more we'll understand how our need for salvation is met in that plan. The more we will be able to connect, the more, more traction there will be between our needs as sinners, as people, and the salvation that God offers us in Christ. The more we understand the root of salvation, how it goes deeply in the Old Testament, the more it will be rooted more deeply in our own lives as well. Also, the more we understand God's glorious plan of salvation, the more we will praise him for it. We sang the song uh, in the beginning, one of my favorites, um, the Romans doxology, the depth of the riches of the wisdom of God. Um, and that, that doxology is in the book of Romans at the, the close of chapter 11. And as Steve pointed out uh, in the very beginning of the service, I mean, that's, that's there as, as what Paul focuses on when he sees the breadth and the depth and the greatness of God's plan for salvation, and then just says, wow, it is such an awesome plan, and God is so wise. Friends, the more we understand the plan of salvation, how it's laid in the Old Testament, what God overcomes to save his people, the more we will join with Paul in praising him for what this salvation is. So I'm excited. We're going to spend four weeks on Ezekiel 36. That's the plan now. Um, 
not all consecutively, but we will do four weeks total on Ezekiel 36. I'm excited about how God might be growing us deeper and deeper into the knowledge of who we are as his children, especially after we've looked at Mark and seen Jesus. Now we kind of go behind the scenes and say, okay, where did this great Messiah come from? How did this plan, how is it laid that it has come to fruition? So that's what we're going to do for the next uh, few weeks. Now, let me say something about this passage before I read it, because there are things in it that may offend some of our you know, modern, enlightened sensibilities here. But I think they're important things for us to understand, uh, because the more we understand our need for salvation, how horribly bad off we are, the more we'll appreciate it. And and the whole book of Ezekiel, let me just give you a really brief snapshot of this whole book. Unfortunately, we're not going to take time to work through all of it, just chapter 36. But the whole book really has two main themes to it. One theme is the glory of God's holiness. The splendor and beauty and majesty of God's God's holiness. Chapter 1, read it perhaps if you can only read one chapter of Ezekiel this week. Read through chapter 1, and it has this great picture of God as, as holy and as this consuming fire. He is, he is holy. And then the other theme in Ezekiel is the ruin and blackness and bleakness and disgusting nature of human sinfulness. And really, those two are just set in, in contrast. They're set in tension. God is so glorious And humans are so disgustingly, revoltingly wicked in light of him. But there's hope. Because God is actually so glorious, he can make a way to to fix things. And that is the reason for hope that we see here. Now, this passage that we're going to look at talks about things like uncleanness, wrath, evil deeds, and worst of all, uh, menstruation as a picture of human sinfulness. And by the way, I, I didn't pick this pick passage so I could talk about this in front of a public gathering here. That's not one of the things that I've been look for, looking forward to all my life to doing. But nevertheless, it's, it's in Scripture, it's the Word of God, and, and thus I will proceed. Um, but pray for me, especially when we get to that point. Uh, but the, we have to have, as I said before, we have to have an accurate picture of how we appear before God or our salvation makes no sense, or it's disconnected from uh, God's plan and purposes. So let's read Ezekiel 36, chapters, um, verses 16 through 21, and then we will, we will talk about it. And it should be, if you're using the Pew Bible, on page 724. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, When the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land and the idols for which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And the people said of them, these are the people of the Lord. And yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. 
That's our section for this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for help. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you would uh, give life through your word. Lord, cause us to see the beauty of your holiness against our, cause us to see our sin against the backdrop of the beauty of your holiness and that we would then see through our sin to your glory and trust that you have a plan to overcome that. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to look at uh, two things here. One, uh, two headings if you're taking notes. Here's the outline. One, our problem of our sin. And two, God's problem of our sin. Uh, The problem that our sin poses for us. And then we will see the problem that our sin poses for God. Um, those are the two, two things that we see in this passage. Now, to, to understand the problem that our sin poses for us, uh, notice how verse 17 picks up. Is, it's kind of like a story. It says, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, uh, that kind of has a uh, you know, once upon a time kind of feel. Once upon a time, the people of Israel, they lived in their own land, Uh, This was the place that God had made for his people to live in, the place he especially formed for them to dwell in a covenant relationship with him. When they lived in their own land, they defiled it. That's the word that is used there, not one that we usually use today. Uh, Literally, it means to make it unclean. They made the land ritually unclean. And the history here is that God has had chosen this nation of Israel among all the nations to be his special people, and he brought them into his land. We see from the way the passage concludes, this is God's land, and he lets the nation of Israel live in God's land, and he says, I will be your God, you will be my people, and together we will live in this land, in this exclusive covenantal relationship. And they need to walk before him wholly. They need to live like they are his people. Only they didn't. Notice what they did wrong here. Verse 18 says that he will pour out, he poured out his wrath upon them for uh, the the blood that they shed in the land. Uh, Hebrew has a kind of interesting word picture here. Uh, Literally, it says that he is pouring out his wrath upon them for the blood that they poured out on the land. The word pour is used there in that sentence twice. They poured out innocent blood on the land, and he's pouring his wrath out on them for it. In other words, God here is pointing out the contradiction that they are supposedly the holy people unto the Lord who are going to walk before him and keep his rules. And what? They've got blood stains all over the land. The land is stained with the blood of innocent people who they have killed. And they're trying, God is saying to them, so you're saying you're a holy people? What's that red stain doing right over there? They've killed innocent people. They're not being God's holy people. The, um, they're, they're, they're disobeying God's laws in his land that he made for them. They've killed innocent people in God's land that he made for them to uh, live in a perfect way. And the other thing they've done here is idolatry. The idols with which they defiled it, it says. 
The idols have made the land unclean as well. Remember, uh, God gave them the land to dwell in this exclusive way. God is in this covenantal relationship with Israel. He is their God. They are his people. They are to relate to him as their God. And that means not worshiping anything else. In fact, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. The, The land is the place for them to exercise this covenantal relationship with him. But what have they done? They have brought idols into this land. They've brought false gods, things they've made with their own hands. They aren't real gods. They're they're just projections of their own imagination. But they've brought those into God's land, and they've worshipped them instead of him. They've defiled the land. Picture it kind of like this. Uh, The Bible talks about how the marriage bed is undefiled, Um, sex in marriage is good. We're going to have a sermon series coming up on the Song of Solomon soon, and we're going to talk more about that. Um, But but imagine, you know, in light of the fact that the marriage bed is undefiled, the Bible says, imagine a a couple is engaged, and they build a house together, and maybe they give special attention to the bedroom where they'll they'll spend their night together. And then imagine that the husband sneaks into that house with another woman beforehand. You could say there that he has defiled that space by using that space that was going to be reserved for for the covenantal relationship between him and his wife, but he's used it with somebody else. He's, in that sense, defiled the place. And that is what the nation of Israel has done to the Lord. The the land is the place that God has reserved for their, their, his relationship with his people. And he talks about that relationship in terms of a marriage covenant, But they have brought other gods into that place, and they've defiled it. They've defiled the land. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 16 is a a rather difficult passage to read. That's another one you you might want to read this week. And there it talks about how God rescues uh, his people as if they're a, a woman, a young girl that he rescues. He saves her life. He then raises her up. She grows up to be beautiful. He marries her. He, God enters into a relationship with his people. But then, as the passage unfolds, it says that, that this woman trusted, and this woman is a picture of the nation, trusted in her own beauty, became a prostitute, drawing lovers to herself. In, in other words, the Bible portrays idolatry as if it's adultery. And if it's especially adultery in the land, it is like right before God's face right in the place that God had made for his people to dwell with him in. And and the the point here is that God cannot help but being personally offended by that. It is an assault against him. And that's the purpose of Ezekiel, is to tell us here, in light of God's abundant goodness and glory and holiness and commitment to his people, the people have deserted him. And they have become ugly in his sight. That, that's why verse 17 is such a, uh, um, a clear picture of what Israel has done. Their ways before me were like, and literally it says, like the menstruation of a woman. Now, what he's saying there is not that women are somehow unclean, more unclean than men are. No, it, the, the, what it's pointing to is that that time of the month is not one that most women love, right? Uh, and the flow of blood is not a comfort to them especially if they're wanting to have a child, which almost every woman back then was wanting, uh, who was married, 
that that time would be a symbol of the fact that you don't have life. And on top of that, the, the flow of blood was considered unclean because any blood flowing was considered unclean because, you know, if you have enough blood flowing, you're going to die. So it was a picture of death. And, and God here, in using that rather disgusting analogy, is saying to his people, you disgust me. You are, you are ugly before me. That's what God is saying. It's a disturbing image because idolatry is disturbing. Sin is disturbing. It, it's, it's ugly before God. There's an emotional and personal component to it. It can't just be separated out as some legal thing. Oh, you've technically broken the law. No, they have sinned against God's person. And what is God's response here? Well, look at verse 18. He says he will pour out his wrath upon them. Verse 19, they will be scattered among the nations, dispersed through the countries. He says, in accordance with their ways and their deeds, that is, their, you know, their idolatry and their murder, he will judge them. He has judged them. And the point here is that they did not live in the land that God had made for them. They didn't live with him as their God, as, their peop- as, he was, as they were supposed to be his people. So now they have to leave the land. They have to go out of the land. Sound familiar at all? Another story we've heard in the Bible about God making a garden for those people to live in and they sinned against him, so now they had to leave. It's it's another picture of that. Humanity is, you know, it's a picture, Israel here is a picture of God making a place for humanity to dwell in, but humanity will not keep according to his rules, so they had to go out and go away. Now, before we continue, I, I think it's helpful to sort of Press the pause button for a second and and reflect a little bit about this that we've just seen in our own lives. Uh, We talk about idolatry back then, but we have to realize that idolatry is something that we can commit right now as well. You might be thinking, well, wait a minute, I don't have little idols in my house. How how, how am I committing adultery? Well, well, listen to um, this definition of idolatry by Tim Keller. I think he nails it right in terms of what the Bible thinks about idolatry. He says, what is an idol? Answer, it is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you is an idol. An idol is whatever you look to and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I feel my life has meaning and I'll know I have value and I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe the kind of relationship to something, this kind of relationship to something, but the best is worship. An idol is anything we worship other than God. Uh, I thought through some questions that will help us detect idols in our lives. Uh, Listen to these and, and search your own heart as I read them to you. What do you have in your life and you think to yourself, I must hold on to this or I'm ruined. Or what do you not have in your life and you think, if only I can achieve this, then I've made it and I'll be okay. What captures your highest allegiance? In other words, what do you run to and say, I will submit to you and follow you? I think we see abundant examples of that in the 
in the elections, you know, with various candidates, people can become very attached and pledge their allegiance to the people in ways that, that are godlike. What group do you want to belong to because you think, if I can only belong, then I'll be secure. Then I won't be alone. What group is that that you seek? Where do you go for ultimate safety and comfort? And what do you look to as your greatest source of pleasure? What voice do you trust more than anything else? Whose approval of you matters most? Before whose eyes do you really live? Whose word do you think at the end of the day is absolutely true above all else? Friends, those questions are designed to get at the, your object of worship. What is it that you are worshiping? And friends, if it's not God, then congratulations, you've found an idol. And this passage teaches us that that idol is a big, big problem. It's not something that we can be neutral towards or indifferent about. No, it's disgusting before God. It's a personal offense against him. And it ought to be a big problem in our own lives. And two things you need to know that just sort of help us understand this better. First, if you've identified just because it's a good thing makes it no less of an idol. People might idolize marriage, and marriage is a blessing from God. Again, we'll, we'll talk more about that as we go on. But it's a horrible source of ultimate refuge, of ultimate trust, of ultimate pleasure. You know, the promotion that you want at work might be a great thing, but it's a terrible identity for you. Augustine talks about uh, uh, disordered loves. He says that's the root of the problem, is that not that what we love is bad, but we love it too much. We love it above God. That's the problem. That's what makes it an idol. The second thing you have to realize, and uh, this is a hard one, is that idolatry does not feel like idolatry when we're doing it. It doesn't feel like we have a choice. I'm not saying we don't have a choice, but it doesn't feel like we have a choice. It feels like I've got to hold on to this thing or I'll die, which is precisely what makes it an idol. We don't feel like it's becoming an idol. We feel like it's something I've got to have, and that's the problem. You know, it's also helpful in terms of practical application to consider the consequence of idolatry that we see in this passage. The consequence of idolatry is always very fitting. Um, God brought them into this land so they could serve God alone, but what have they done? They've, they've served these other idols, and the consequence is they therefore have to go out of the land and serve the nations of these other false gods. It's a fitting uh, consequence. And, and the other thing you have to realize is that they worship these other gods mainly because they thought if they got, brought these other gods into their lives, those gods would keep them safe. And what happens? Those gods make them vulnerable to God's wrath. That's what really happens. Uh, the, uh, the irony of idolatry is that we seek something so much for security to save us, and yet it is that thing that we want so much that ends up destroying us. So it's actually part of God's grace and mercy that he sends the nation out of the land because there they realize that their gods that they looked to did not keep them safe. And, you know, after the exile, when God sends them out of the land, uh, they're not perfect. They have a lot of problems, but one of them is no longer idolatry because the nation doesn't seem to go back to that after they realize that those gods don't keep them safe. Friends, 
um, a lot of aspects of your life will be mysterious to you until you understand this sense of idolatry. We were made to worship. God created us as worshipers, so we would worship him. But when we don't worship him, we worship idols that are less than him. So by definition, something is going to be wrong with our lives. It's not going to work. And, and various aspects of our life will then you know, be mysterious to us. So, for instance, we might say, wait a minute, when I get into this situation, maybe around these important people, why, do I, why can't I never seem to think clearly? Why do I always say stupid things when I'm before important people? Or, or maybe why do I say offensive things on Facebook or an email that drive people further away than what I really want is them for, for them to be close? Why do we, we want something? See, the irony here is, the, the thing going on here is that it's an idol, and we want it so much because we think we have to have it, and yet in having it, it destroys us because it's not what is really going to be our object of worship. I remember talking to a person, uh, and this was very clear to me, uh, this person had a number of problems, and, and mainly in terms of his relationships with other people, and he was saying, you know, Mike, what's going on? I, I try so hard to uh, have these relationships with people, but, but as I try harder, the harder I try, the more I just make a mess of everything. And we walked through his life, and I pointed out idolatry to him and told him what's going on. Well, it's because he, this is a god to you. This is your God. You're serving this above all else. You've got to have it. And it's not delivering on its own its promise, and you're destroying it. It's your search for it that's, that you're undoing. And that conversation sticks in my mind because the man was just so happy and elated. Um, but his life finally made sense. Uh, he saw that the idols were causing his pain. And, and you see what that teaches us there is that idolatry is really only a big problem for us when it's undetected. And that's why the book of Ezekiel is given to us. So that we can see the glory of God, and then in light of the glory of God, our idols will appear for what they really are. It's kind of like I thought, you know, if you, uh, if you have something written on the back of a piece of paper, and you're looking at the front, and you're trying to read it, well, as long as it's kind of like down on the, the table, it's going to be hard to read. But, but if you bring it up to the light, well, then you can kind of see through to the other side. And that's kind of what our idols are like. Um, we don't see them when we're just living our lives, focusing on the things of our lives, but we hold our lives up to the glory of God. Well, then our idols can be seen, and then they can be confessed, and we can grow. But before we can get rid of our idols, we must know something else from this passage, and that is that what is the problem of our sin before God? And let, me, uh, let me explain this to you. Uh, this, the story, remember we, we talked about how Verse 17 is kind of like a story. When Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. And Well, this story continues, kind of be, picks up again in verse 20. Notice here, but when the nation, I'm sorry, but when they came to the nations, wherever they came, this is Israel when they're being exiled here, they profaned my holy name in that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. This is God's problem of our sin. God's problem of our sin is that when he judges his people from their sin, his name is profaned. That may not be so obvious to you, so so think about what's really going on here. Uh, The Hebrew here has a little bit different of a nuance to it. Uh, Literally, it says, the holiness of my name is profaned. God's holiness of his name. His name carries 
holiness to it. That's the first thing we have to realize. God's name is to be revered and honored. You know, when I thought of this, I, I thought of the movie that came out a number of years ago, uh, The Lion King. You've seen that? Where, where the one hyena says the name Mufasa, and then all the others kind of like shudder because the name carries that sense of majesty to it, right? Well, the same is true of God, but to a far, far greater degree, and really in a whole different sense, too. God's name carries that sense of holiness to it. It is, it is a holy name, a name to be honored and revered above all else. Um, even the, the, there's a commandment about that. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. But the name is... then, then the, Because the name is holy... Sorry, the name is holy because God is holy. But when the nations uh, come, to, I'm sorry, trying to do this a little bit different than I normally do, and was on one track, but needed to say something else first. Um, so here's the thing: God's holiness, God's name is holy, and the nations at the time knew God's name was holy because His people bore His name, and God protected and cared for His people. So that then people, the nations saw God caring for his people and said, whoa, that God is serious. Um, that's what happened. So, for instance, in the book of Joshua, uh, you read the opening of Joshua, the spies go into the land and they meet Rahab. And Rahab's like, we knew what uh, your God did to those Egyptians. And when we heard that you were coming our way, we shuddered because we knew your God is holy. We knew the holiness of his name is what she's saying there. And, and we were scared. So God is, is holy, and the way he shows his holiness is by taking these people, the nation of Israel, and by protecting them, and by bringing them into the land, and by caring for them. They're just a puny nation, really, and there's giant nations around, and yet Israel has really the best land that all the other nations want. How did that happen? Well, it's because God was fighting for them. God was protecting for them. God was establishing the holiness of his name and the way he, he vindicated his people and cared for them. But now, these people have been kicked out of his land. Now they're, you know, they're going to all these other nations. And it's kind of like they're at border, control, border patrol and they look at their passport. Oh, you're from Israel. Wait a minute. What are you doing here? You, you had to go out of your land. Why is that? And what does that do? Well, it... It, it, it brings um, trouble for God's holy name. It, it defiles his holy name because all of a sudden it looks like, well, God, God can't keep these people safe. That's God's problem of our sin. When God judges the sin of his people, it bring, brings repute to his holy name because he's promised to care for those people. So what's God going to do? Well, let me give you a, another illustration. Um, it's... It's sort of like if there was a king of a great country and he had a rebellious son. And the king said to his son, if you're going to live in my castle, you have to obey my rules. But he doesn't obey the rules, so the king kicks him out. But then there's the king's son begging on the streets. And now the king has a problem because the honor of the king's name, the honor of the crown is tied with his son because his son will be king after him. Legally, his son bears his name. But now he's begging on the streets. So what does that say about the king's ability to care for his son? But on the other hand, if he brings the, king, the son back into the house, what does that say about the honor of his holiness, having brought, uh, you know, allowing such a wicked person in the castle? That's the problem that God faces. Because the people are God's people. He has tied his holiness and the honor of his name to his people. 
and yet they've been horribly wicked. So God has naturally judged them. But when he judges them, his name is questioned because now they are not cared for and protected. So what's God going to do? Well, all we see in this passage is sort of the glimmer of hope. It's sort of like our, our car goes up and we see you know, that the crest of the hill and we see there's something on the other side, but we don't quite know what it is. Verse 21 is what we see sort of the glimmer on the other side. But I had concern for my holy name, which the nation of Israel had profaned among the nations in which they came. This looks ahead to the conclusion of the story. God has concern for his holy name. Remember what I said about the passage of why we're studying the book of Ezekiel. It's because this passage gives us a unique picture on the plan of salvation. And here's the origin of the plan. Here's where it starts. God has concern about his holy name. Because God cares about the holiness of his name, and because his name is profaned through judgment, the hope is that he might not always judge. That's where the hope comes from. See, for those who are not his people, though, God can judge them just fine, and that does not question the holiness of his name. I mean, there were Canaanites living in the land, and God judged them. They were murderers. They actually killed their own children. They were idolaters too, and God judged them. No problem with his holy name in that case. But his people, he made a covenant promise to be with them and protect them. So, so the hope of salvation is that God will vindicate that promise. He will vindicate his name by being true to that promise. Now, I understand where that idea of our salvation being rooted in the fact that God will have concern for his holy name, that might, that might trouble us because on the face of it, it doesn't seem all that good news. I mean, we've defiled God's name, right? We're, we're criminals in God's universe. And if we just hear God say, well, I'm going to vindicate the holiness of my name. I'm going to have concern on my holy name. That might, that might mean, oh, dear, we're in trouble then except for the fact that he's made a covenant with us, with those in Christ. That changes everything. Because then, when he vindicates his holy name, it's not to destroy his people, but to save his people, to call his people to himself. Now, friends, what does that mean for us? It means that if you try to access God outside of Christ, he will vindicate his holy name by destroying you. But if you know God in Christ, if you come to him in the covenant that he has made for us, taking the name of Christ so that you are his people, then he will vindicate his holy name by keeping the promise to his son and saving you. That's what it means. If you are in Christ, then you can rest assured. I love the song we sing that says that in heaven we will be more happy, but not more secure. It's bad grammar, I know, but it's good theology because in heaven... Uh, we will not be any more secure than we are now. Because now, if we're in Christ, we have the promise that he will vindicate his holiness by protecting us, by keeping us. If you're in a covenant relationship with God through Christ, you don't need to fear his wrath. God may discipline you, but it is out of love to raise you up to the fullness of his image. God's concern for his holy name is the origin of your salvation. Now, some might still be struggling this concept. We're almost done, but I just want to remove one objection that you might have. Some might think, really? I don't like the idea that the origin of my salvation, the source of my salvation, is God being concerned for his holy name. 
What about him being concerned about us? What about John 3.16? God so loved the world, you know, us. How does that fit? I mean, normally, if, if somebody acts, if, if somebody does a good thing for you, but then you realize they did it for the sake of the holiness of their name, it kind of invalidates the goodness of it towards you, doesn't it? Well, we need to come full circle and ask the question, what kind of relationship do we have with God in the first place? The answer is a kind of relationship where we worship him. That's what we, we owe him as his people. And what's the best way for God to confirm us in our worship of him? That we see the holiness of his name. That we see his glory. That God's glory is vindicated before us so that we'll see how great he is. Think of it this way. Uh, this morning, I got up early to work on the sermon. And um, one of my, my children came down because they were scared of monsters. And uh, we prayed together about how God was supremely powerful and, and will protect them and keep them safe. Then we sent her back up to bed because it was the middle of the night for everybody else. And, and I kind of thought about it afterwards that if God's name weren't holy, there'd be nothing to, to pray about there. It's the fact that, that God's name is revered and is strong and great that, that she could be confident that God would keep her safe from monsters. Of course... We don't have to worry about monsters, but we have to worry about a lot of other things. That there really are evil people in this world. And there's such a thing as cancer and death and sin and horrible things. If God's name does not carry holiness, then we have nothing to trust. There's nothing in him that we can trust. So the source of our salvation is God's concern for his name so that he will vindicate his name and that we will see it and be able to worship him. And then the goal of our salvation is just that very thing as well. We see in Paul, in Ephesians 1, just rehearse what our salvation does. And he says that God shows us in Christ for the praise of the glory of his grace. He says that in Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, and inheritance with Christ. And Paul says it is for the praise of his glory. And by his Holy Spirit we are sealed for the great day for the praise of his glory. And then later in that same chapter, Paul talks about, he prays that we would experience the fullness of our salvation more. And you know what the fullness of that salvation is? That we would see his glory. So friends, you cannot drive a wedge between what God does for his own sake and what God does for us. Because the essence of our salvation is us coming to God and seeing him supremely valuable and supremely glorious. So friends, is sin a problem? Yes. It's a problem for us. It's a problem because it's defilement and it incurs God's wrath. It's a problem for God because when he judges our sin, it assaults his holiness. But the origin of our salvation is that God will vindicate his holiness. And it won't be by judging his people because that's what caused the problem for his holiness in the first place. It will be by graciously saving them and saving them in such a way that they will come to love him and worship him and be truly transformed into his likeness so that he won't have to judge them anymore. How will he do that? Well, we will see. Let's pray.